You know, when I think about the church, when I think about the big C church, I think about a lot of things. I think uh, uh, good things. I think about family. I think about community. I think about uh, discipleship. I think about joy, worship. But if I'm being honest, there's some other things that I think about too. Um, I think about politics. Um, I think about uh, some wounding that I have from the church. Um, I think about legalism. And see, the reality is the church, it's all these things because it's made up of us, broken people who bring some good things, but mostly some bad things. (laughs) And the Lord gives us His grace, but it all comes together in the church. Now, I love the church, and those are some of my views of the Big C Church. So what do you think the views are of those who are outside of the church? Those who don't know the Lord, what do you think their views are? They're not very good, are they? They think we're um, a bunch of hypocrites. They think that we're holier than thou. They think that we're judgmental. Uh, They don't think that we love, but instead they think we hate and condemn. Many people outside of the church, non-believers, that's what their view or opinion of the church is many times. It's very sad to me. There was a book published a few years ago called Unchristian. And it was written by a couple of guys, one of them of which is the president of the Barna Group, Barna Research Group, uh, and they do research in different organizations, especially in churches, to kind of give us a sense of what's happening in culture and what's happening in the church. This is what he says in his book in chapter one. He says, our research shows that many of those outside of Christianity, especially younger adults, have little trust in the Christian faith. The esteem for the lifestyle of Christ followers is quickly fading among outsiders. They admit their emotional and intellectual barriers go up when they're around Christians, and they reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christianity. This is not just conjecture. It's not just his opinion. This is based on real research of people who are outside of the church, and we would do well to listen to what he's saying. However... Today we're going to look at a story in Acts 4 that if, if the church looked like what we're going to look at today, I think it might change their opinion. We've been in this series called uh, Acts, the story of the church, and we've been in chapter 4 for a little while, and it's been just an awesome time of study together, and, and, and the first four chapters have been really positive, honestly. God's doing amazing things in these four chapters. We're seeing miracles and mission and favor and unity. And today's really not any different. We're going to look at Acts 4, 32 through 35, if you want to turn there, or if you didn't bring your Bible, the, the text will be on the screen for us today. I want to read that this morning. Acts 4, 32 says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I don't know if if you hear what I hear or see what I see when I read this, I look at this text and this, this story and I go, this seems too good to be true. I mean, this description of the church uh, 
some would call it um, hyperbolic. In other words, it's like taken to the extremes, right? Here's some, here's some of the, uh, the phrases used. The full number, everyone, uh, of believers, right? It says, no one said that anything of his own belonged to him. Everything they had in common. Uh, the disciples had great power and great grace. And there was not a needy person in the group. Here are all these, these extreme words, these ex- extreme descriptions. It seems too good to be true. And I'll be honest, I've been in ministry for 27 years, and I grew up in the church. I've never seen a church that looks like that church. Have you? Now, I've seen churches that are great churches, and they're really great at this thing over here, or this church over here may be really great at this thing over here, but I've never seen a church that was that church, which is so important for us to see this. I think the Lord wants us to see this as an example of what the church can be, even who we can be as a church. Luke is not, he's not just exaggerating as he takes down this account, right? He is, <laughs> he's not just giving us all these great examples to the extreme so he can have a better story. Luke is just writing down the truth of what was happening. That's what makes this so beautiful. This actually happened like this, and it seems too good to be true. I think it's neat that Luke reiterates in this section, chapter 4, a little bit of what he talked about in chapter 2. So what he's talking about is community life. This is what the church looked like. They, they had meals together. They, they were discipled together. They uh, took the Lord's Supper together. They cared for each other. And then here in chapter 4, he kind of comes back to this other snapshot of community life in the church. And it's awesome. It's awesome. I believe... You know, when I look at this, there's, we see in, in the book of Acts, obviously, a lot of signs and wonders. This is one of them, in my opinion. This is a miracle that the church looks like this. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, when I think about the culture, and I think about a growing hostility and ambivalence towards Christ and his church, I don't know about you, but I long to get back to that. Do you? And we've made the church a lot of different things. But I long for that. I long for the simplicity of that. I long for the care and love and, and uh, benevolence of that. I long for the discipleship and the connectedness and the authenticity of that. That's what I want and believe South City Church can become. Do you? We can do it with God's grace and goodness. I believe we can get there with this as our guide, the early church. We have to get back there. Listen, we have to get back there if we're going to truly see the Lord do something in our communities. If we're going to see people come to know Jesus, we have to get back to a place of authenticity, honesty, community, caring, sharing, mission. We have to if we're going to disciple people in this church. We've got to be a place that can be trusted. So here's the first question on your outline on the back of your sheet this morning. It says this, (laughs) and this is an honest question that I had this week. How did this church experience happen? I mean, come on. How did this happen? And as I began to ask that question, I was reminded uh, of something Jesus prayed. And the Lord took me back to to this spot in John 17. Will you look at it with me? John 17, verse 20. Now, let me set this up. Jesus is praying to the Father. 
and he's praying about the disciples that are standing around him, and he's praying about the disciples that will come to know him through the words of the disciples standing around him. This is what he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfect, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as even as you have loved me. Now how awesome is it that we're included in this prayer? That's us, by the way. Do you realize that? It's not just the disciples or the church that are standing around Jesus, the, the group of people. It's all those who will believe as a result of their word and their ministry, which includes us. Jesus is praying for us and all of the church. It's not just the early church that Jesus wants to see have love and unity. It's the church of Jesus forever. That's his heart. And I want you to notice this phrase in this text this morning. It's so important. The world will know. The world will know that God sent His only Son for them because we love and care for one another. Do you see that? Listen, we talk about mission a lot. We talk about, we talk about being evangelistic a lot. We talk about sharing our story with other people. We, sh- we talk about being authentic and trying to, to have relational equity so that we can make the difference in someone's life. But church, hear me right now. It begins in loving and caring for each other. Not out there. In here. In our homes. In our lives together. When I looked at that, I thought, oh my goodness. How often we say, who's going to go on that mission trip, right? Who's going to go witness that, you know? Who's going to go? No. This is saying, Lord, let them together love. Let them together be unified because it's in that love and it's in that unity that the world will know you sent me. So important. The first thing we have to do, the starting point of mission, is love and unity with each other. Now, this beautiful expression of the church was God's will and Jesus' prayer. It's God's will and Jesus' prayer. And I, I just, I still love to see this story, and it, it just overwhelms me a little bit, to be honest with you. Let's break down a little bit of our story, can we? The first phrase in the text is this. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The full number, everyone who believed, they were of one heart and one soul. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to be of one heart and one soul with your spouse even sometimes or the people that you work with, or your best friends. But it says the full number, everyone, was of one heart and one mind. That is this beautiful unity, right? They were connected. They were connected relationally and missionally in unity. They were connected. And not just connected because they knew each other. They were one. Do you hear that? I want us to just, I don't want us just to hear something. I want us to take it in. They were one. They loved each other. They cared for each other. They were one. Here's the next phrase. It says, no one 
said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. No one. I, I don't know about you, but that stops me in my tracks. No one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but God's. There was this, there was a faith and an understanding that everything belonged to God. Nothing is my own. You know, this was very convicting to me this week. And I hope it is to you as well because we have to get this. We have to understand that God has made us stewards of even the breath in our lungs that we sang about. That's not even ours. It's His. He gave His breath to us. It's His. We are stewards of that breath. He's given us everything that we have. Every resource, every penny, everything we have, it's not ours. It's His. When I think about this story and I think about these people, I think, Lord, what did they see? What kind of a movement of the Lord, of the Spirit, took place in such a way that they considered their personal security, their investments for their families, secondary to the kingdom of God? Man, they had to see something that blew their minds. They had to see something they said, I don't care about that stuff. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And this verse is convicting and powerful, and yet the reality is they're just being obedient to what they had already heard. This wasn't a new idea. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke 12, 32. Luke 12, 32 says this. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. This may have been just a few months before. This might have been a year before. I'm not sure how long ago from this moment. But it's close enough they can remember Jesus saying this very thing. He wants to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. This wasn't a new idea. And listen, as, as time rolls on in the early church, this is not also just uh, something we see for the early church. This is something that as the church is growing. This is a sentiment. This is an a admonition for believers. Okay? And so we see this in Philippians. Paul says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Does that sound familiar? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's exactly what we see happening in the early church. And Paul's saying it's not just this snapshot of this beautiful moment, it's not just a miracle. This is an expectation of who we're to be. This is who we're to be. Love more than yourself. Put others' interests above your own. Let your things and your way and your preference be secondary to what God is doing in the kingdom. Listen, when I look at this, it seems like amazing faith of these believers, doesn't it? They're bringing lands and houses and it seems like amazing faith, and it is. But here's the truth. Our God does amazing things when He sees 
His people exhibit amazing faith in a faithful God. I'm going to say that again. God does amazing things when He sees His people exhibit amazing faith in a faithful God. Oh, that we would come to know the truth. That our stuff is not ours. And God's got such a bigger plan than what we see in front of our faces. And so many of us get dragged down into the brokenness of life and the monotony of life. And the Lord's saying, you don't see the kingdom. I want to give you the kingdom. If you could put yourself second, if you could put your interests second, I'll give you the kingdom. And trust me, the kingdom is overwhelming. Our lives and our interests pale in comparison to what God wants to do with us in the kingdom. This next phrase says this, they had everything in common. I think this is an interesting phrase. (laughs) I I stared at it, I looked at it, I studied it. It's interesting to me because you may remember when we studied Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 was sharing about the fact that believers had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost from all over the known world. Remember that? You remember all the languages we talked about that had come? We're talking different languages. We're talking different cultures. We're talking different colors, different food, different preferences. I'm thinking, Luke, these guys have nothing in common. Help me understand. I'm trying to understand. And this this is what I came to. They have everything in common because the things that matter most is what they had in common. They shared together. This is what they had. The only thing, really, that they had. The resurrection of Jesus. Faith in His mission. Care for each other. That's what they had. And Luke says they had everything in common. You know what he's saying? Everything that matters, they had in common. What I see in that is there's so many things in our lives that we think are so important, they don't matter. We ought to have everything in common that matters. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Care for one another and the mission to make Him known. That's that's all that matters. It's all that matters. They had everything in common. It means they shared things together. Whatever was needed, the church provided. Now, it's important for me to say this. There's some people that think that um, communism uh, or or socialism is supported by some of these scriptures in this area here. And I'm going to get into it a little bit later here in my message. It's not. It's not. Um, We all know communism doesn't work, right? In fact, I want to ask you to pray for me and Brother Jerry tomorrow morning. We leave very early for uh, a trip to Cuba. We'll be in Cuba for four days and talk about a place that we see that that way of life does not work. We see it. This scripture does not support that. I'll explain more in just a second. We're seeing in this text right here, we're seeing in this story, exponential growth, exponential uh, unity in the church. And they're not even keeping numbers anymore. Remember when I said that? They're not... The last number we had was 5,000. One theologian says that the early church in the first six months of this movement was about 100,000 people. 
100,000 people in six months. South City, you think we could handle that? I don't know. We could try. 100,000 people in six months. Well, how? (laughs) Jesus had prayed for unity, and the Spirit had filled them, and they were speaking with boldness. They were going and speaking with boldness. The Lord was adding to their number every single day. We see two themes in this text. Okay? Here's the two main themes that we see. Their unified love for each other. Their unified love for each other and their mission to reach the world. That's the two themes. Acts 4.33 says this, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love this. They have great power and great grace, right? We know the great power. We we talked about this last week. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they're going and speaking in boldness. But what are they speaking? They're sharing their personal story. They're sharing their own testimony of what God has done in them, and they're sharing about the resurrection of Jesus. Now listen, this would have been offensive because this main group of people, this, the Sadducees, they, they didn't believe in resurrection. But nothing had changed for Peter. Nothing had changed for these believers. You remember what Peter said up a little further? Uh, if we go back, just a little bit rewind, Acts 4.20, when he told the Sanhedrin, he said, listen, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I've got to speak. This is what I've seen. I've seen the Messiah. I lived with Him. I watched Him do signs and wonders and miracles. I've seen it. And then I saw Him crucified and murdered on a cross. I saw it. And then I saw Him raised to life. I can't can't help it. I've got to speak of what I've, I've seen and heard. You can do whatever you need to do, but for me, I'm going to speak of what I've seen and heard. They're speaking with great power and God is blessing and anointing. The church is growing. Next thing we see in the text is with great grace. Now, I think I've experienced some great grace. <laughs> There's two, this is twofold. This is twofold. Great grace is saying this. Horizontally, they've seen great grace. Grace just means favor. So they've, they've got favor with each other. They have this amazing unity with each other. This amazing love with each other, God's favor. But they also have sort of a vertical favor. God is giving them an anointing, a blessing, a favor, so that people are coming to know Jesus and they're growing. The church is growing exponentially. Great grace, great favor. Again, these these themes are the main things that we see. Unified love for each other and mission to reach the world. John MacArthur says this, a fellowship characterized by loving unity and evangelistic zeal receives God's blessings. A church characterized, a fellowship characterized by loving unity and evangelistic zeal receives God's blessings. That's what we see in this text. Luke again begins to comment about the beauty of this community life. He he mentioned it in, in Acts 2. And he brings it back up again. He, he brings it up again later here in, in Acts 4, uh, 34. He says this. There was not a needy person among them. Not one. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as he had need. 
Now listen, people had come from, Scripture says, from all over the known world to Pentecost. They had come for a shorter trip, right? And they got swept up in the movement of God. And they stayed. People from all over the known world, they stayed. They ran out of stuff, right? They ran out of food. They ran out of provision. And they stayed, and what happened? The church took care of their need. Now just think about that. 3,000, 5,000, 100,000, and yet the Lord, as He's bringing believers who, who have need, He's bringing believers with provision. That's how God works. In our church, we have believers who have need, and it's our joy to help. And He's bringing believers who have provision, and God's using them. It's a beautiful partnership. No one had need. Again, this hyperbolic statement, no one. The church met their needs. And we see, listen, this kind of generosity is important for us. I think it's so important. Just to, this is not just a snapshot of what happened. It's not just historical, okay? It's not just descriptive of what happened. It's prescriptive of where we need to go and who we need to be. Why do I know that? James 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. 1 John 3 says a similar thing. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's put our money where our mouth is, is what he's saying. Let's not just make a statement about knowing God. Let our lives prove it. Let our care for other people prove it. Because when they see that, they'll know it's true. Listen, we can't trust what people say anymore. It's just sad, but it's, it's the reality. We can't just trust what they say. Their lives need to prove the authenticity of their statements. Now clearly meeting the needs and caring for those in our community, I mean it's obvious, right, for the, for the church. Those who are struggling, it's a priority for the church. And I'll just say this, we, our main strategy for discipleship is small group ministry, South City small groups. We also have, we also have Sunday school classes. But here's the reality, no matter if it's Sunday school class or a small group, if you have someone in your group and they come to you with a need, and it's a need that your group can handle, you don't have to bring that to the church. You are the church. You are the church. You can talk about it as a group and say, you know what, I think the Lord wants us to help here. We just saw this in one of my small groups. There was a need. And we talked about it as a small group and said, hey, I, I think we can help here. Let's meet that need. And we did. No money came out of our benevolence fund. We also have a benevolence fund to help people who have need. We didn't have to go to the Benevolence Fund because we were the church and we could walk with them in love and meet that need just as the early church has done. That's what you can do. We see the kind of generosity being given in the early church was <laughs> unbelievable. It's overwhelming. Look with me, Acts 4.35. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Some people, they kind of just read over this and they don't get the details, they don't understand what's happening. They kind of think, you know, it sounds like people are selling houses, they're bringing everything they have. They're bringing every home, every penny, everything they have. They're pulling it together in a big group of money and then they're going to divvy it out among each other. That, that actually is communism. That's not what happened, okay? Though some people that support that view try to take this scripture and say that's what's happening. That is not what is happening, okay? First thing we know here, because of Acts 12, 12, this is John Mark's mother, Mary. You can look at it later. It says that she, she had a home, and they met in her home. She didn't sell her home and bring it to the disciples' feet. You see, these people who brought homes and lands, it was a voluntary action. As God moved on their heart, they said, I think the Lord wants us to sell this property, and we're going to bring That doesn't mean that's all they had. It doesn't mean they didn't have a home over here. This wasn't bring everything you have, we're going to be a commune. This was the Lord laying on certain individuals' hearts voluntarily to bring to the church. That's what happened. The giving of land and homes, completely voluntary. Not demanded to the community. And that's why we see a little bit later, and we're going to look at this more in depth next week, but this guy by the name of Barnabas, he's, give, he's made an example here at the very end of chapter 4. He's the example that Luke wants to hold up and say, hey, take a look at Barnabas. He sold some land, and he brought it to the church. Now listen, if it was compulsory to sell land and houses, they wouldn't be making a big deal out of Barnabas. He would just be doing what they'd ask him to do. No, it was, it was completely voluntary that they brought these things to the church. Let's look at this, Acts 4.35, the last verse of our text today says this, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest. When I look at that, I get a little creeped out. When I get the idea, I get, I get a little creeped out and I get a little blessed by the idea of it. Here's why. I have seen so many pastors and leaders take advantage of the church. I've, so, I've seen so many wolves in sheep's clothing. I've seen it happen over and over again, whether it be a, a private jet or an exorbitant salary or even just the idea that I'm the king of the church and my queen. No, that... We're to be washing feet. So when I, the idea that, that this picture of people bringing their gifts to the feet of the, the apostles, at first I go, oh, that's, it's, concern, it's concerning because it's, we've, seen it fall, we've seen it fall down. We've seen it break, uh, break, the church break in that way. But there's also this beauty. There, there's a, a, a trust. Of this, of this money coming to the apostles. Now, I believe, listen, our church and every church ought to have systems uh, in place of accountability and oversight and transparency. And I think they ought to walk that way with, with uh, no hesitation. Accountability, transparency, and oversight is the way we ought to operate. This example given here about how the local church is, is giving this is, by the way, I just want to say this. This is a, a unique example. We don't see an example like this in, in the rest of Scripture. In the rest of the New Testament, we don't see this type of movement of giving of homes and land. We don't see it as much as we see 
right here in this text. This was a special moment. They would bring it and lay the, the money at the disciples' feet. It was the people's voluntary action to bring their gifts. And yet it was the responsibility of the leaders to disperse it in a way that would honor God. They had responsibility on them. They were held accountable to God just as we are held accountable to God. Now, sometimes giving is done. <laughs> just say this. Sometimes giving is done in the church in such a way that you want to hang on to some control. So you choose to designate some money for certain things. Now listen, designating money because you have a passion and a vision from the Lord for a specific area of ministry, praise God, designate it all day. But to designate money or funds to make a statement about your lack of faith or trust in pastors, that's not right. That's not what we see in this text. We see trust. But what I'm saying is it's not just all about your trust. It's about our responsibility. And we ought to have systems that hold us accountable for that, right? My prayer is that as a church, as we continue to grow, as we continue to put our vision ahead of us, and I'll just tell you this too, this week was amazing. Our, our volunteers and, and team leaders did an amazing thing. We had at least 15 kids raise their hand and say they wanted to receive Jesus and trust Jesus with their lives. At least 15 kids. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm teaching today a little bit sad because we worked really hard all week saying to the kids, we want you to come back on Sunday and sing the song with our kids. Bring your families, and I sent a letter home. And we didn't have one child come back from VBS aside from our own kids. And it made me sad. I was really sad. I was bummed. And it just reminds me of how much work we have to do. We got a lot of work to do because we have to help this community know we love them. We trust, we want them to trust us. We want them to know that we're not just saying something. We want to walk life with people. We want to be a multicultural church. We want to put our money where our mouth is. It's my prayer that we as a church can be unified in love. Caring for each other. And that we can be on mission together to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus. That's the prayer. The two themes of this text today. Be unified in love, caring for each other, and reach the world with the mission of Jesus.